0: Welcome to the Strange Brew Podcast. My name's Jason Barnard, and that was Gene Kruper and Little Drummer Boy. It's because I've got the huge honour today to welcome Colin Peterson, one of the Bee Gees in the 1960s, a fantastic drummer. A huge welcome, Colin.
1: It's wonderful to talk to you, Jason. Thanks for uh, inviting me on the show.
0: It's a huge pleasure. We're going to be talking later in the show about your Best of the Bee Gees tour, that you're doing, which sounds yep. amazing. But what we're going to do is we're going to start right back in your early years, which is absolutely fascinating. Maybe it's worth starting off with your early years and the first time you're on the stage.
1: Well, uh, the first time on a stage was I come out of out of my first band, which was the uh, the school I went to called the Humpy Bong State School Fife Band. <laughs> And I think a little bit of the attraction there was apart from three drummers up the front, boy drummers, it was all girls. Huh. And I've always loved female company. Huh. And although I'm just a little kid and it's all very naive, and, but it was a bit of a challenge to tell you the truth, because there was some teacher came around to the school and he taught me to read meter and little rolls like you know that sort of stuff Mm. which I took on pretty quickly but there was an added problem is that I had to march in the band when I was playing this stuff and the drum was like a third of the size of me (laughs) so it really was a bit of a challenge and then my Rich uncle, Billy McLeod on my mother's side, was chatting to mum and he said, how's the boy getting on? And mum said, oh, he's playing in the school band. He seems to like playing the drums. And maybe I'll take him down to Brisbane to have some formal tuition. Yeah. And Billy said, oh, that's, that's lovely, Edna, was the name, but there's no point doing this if he doesn't have a kit of drums to go home to. So, as a surprise, Billy drove me down in his Mark 7, I think it is, Jaguar. And we went down to a music store in Parlings. And he said, just choose what you want, Cole. And he bought me a new kit of Premier drums, which I took home. And there was a little like shed in the back of the. Of the property, and I started the lessons. The lessons there, and that was my my uh, beginning.
0: Amazing, and the significance of uh, little drummer boy, Gene Cruper.
1: Well, the significance there is that the first performance that I did with other musicians—talk about jumping in the deep end—was with a twenty-two piece jazz band. Wow at the Brisbane City Hall. Now, this is just pre-rock and roll, and these bands travelled around the country, and they had huge, huge audiences. So Mum and I arrive at the venue, and this particular venue, it's all been restored, which is lovely in Brisbane because so much has been lost, but there were no curtains. And the other alternative would for me to be introduced and walk on stage. But my teacher had this idea that it would be a great surprise for the audience if I actually burst out of the drum, the bass drum. Now, I should explain the bass drums were much bigger in those years, thankfully. And I could just manage to curl up inside this bass drum and... Mum's only reservation to Harry was, how's he going to breathe? And Harry said, first of all, we'll make it easy for him to get out of it by putting a paper skin on the front. And secondly, we'll put some holes in it. Then I'm told by Harry that you'll be in here a while, Colin, because the audience can't have any hint that you're in this drum. Mm-hmm. And we've got to wait for all the all the audience to come into the venue but with you in the drum. And also, we can't have you bursting out really early in the show. It's got to be a bit of a surprise. So I had to be curled up in this drum for, I'm not joking here, I reckon about 45 minutes. <laughs> so how's that for discipline? And I had a little cue and then... I'm waiting and waiting in the queue, and I burst out of the drum with just a spotlight on me, and there were about three thousand people there, and they all rose to their feet and gave me a standing ovation, and I've been trying to live up to that ever since.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> Amazing. And you were, in terms of your your training or, or your early years of drumming, you were. Schooled in, uh, in jazz, a little bit like your your peers, like Ginger Baker, Mitch Mitchell.
1: Exactly. Yeah. I think that if I had have taken it up after the, the rock and roll thing be began, I don't think I would have had quite the imagination of little things that I played with the BGS. That's my theory, anyway. I saw sort of thing with Ringo, and and he said that the Jazz gave him a certain, although he was playing rock and roll, it gave him a certain fluency. So, look, I, I I love rock and roll. I'm very eclectic with my music. And I would sit in this little, well, it was a bit better than a shed. And I would have maybe no more than about half a dozen, 20 at the most, 78 records. And I had a wind-up gramophone. And my father built a high stool so it would be really close to my ear, although you didn't have to play loud, loudly with jazz. It was very subtle. And looking back at it, I think the fact that I had so few records and music over, over that oh, a year and a half I learned, maybe two years, I learned Every nuance in every record, it taught me to study a track and think, oh, what's the piano playing there? I'll play it again and be able to just listen to the piano through the track. And I think that that helped me in later years, particularly when I I tried my hand at production. And one little thing that I'll never forget this, Harry said to me, well, he said a couple of things. He said, Colin, with the drumming, what you don't play is as important as what you do play.
2: Yeah.
1: He also said, when you're playing with other musicians, it's a conversation.
2: Mm.
1: Now, when you're having a conversation, first of all, you don't interrupt. You wait until someone says something musically, and if you've got something to reply to that, well and good, but if you don't, you don't say anything. So I think in later years, that taught me to put the vocals right in front of me and just give some color to the Gibbs songs and try and settle on a really nice feel and, well, you know, images a lot and look the part. But I was great friends with them. At that time, along with Vince Maloney, who was our fifth member, yeah. it, uh, well, we pulled it off.
0: Your ties with the Gibbs are so fascinating. Some people may not remember now that you were a huge child star, yes. including the film Smiley, which is now legendary. And, um, it is. Even mm. Maurice Gibb was a huge fan of the film, and, and that was one of the factors in, in encouraging the Gibbs to actually relocate to Australia, wasn't it?
1: It's a lovely picture, really. Like when mum and I arrived in England shortly after the release of, of Smiley, our primary objective was to get an agent. And it took us a while. A few agents, the grades turned us down. There was something going on there with children. What future could they have? I was there. I went back to school in England for several months. And picturing England, London at the time, There were still bomb sites on corners, Mm. and it was all very grey and sombre. The clothes were very grey and sombre. And I'd come from Australia, which was also colourful, and the sun was shining. But there was a real optimism in Australia. That really wasn't happening in London at that time. They were recovering There was rationing, goodness me, right, with food Mm. that just ceased before we arrived. And I'm not not surprised at all that the smiley film, the color and the upbeat nature of it and my performance because the character I played, was so optimistic, I'm going to get this money to get this bike together and to buy this bicycle, it's a simple tale. It did really capture the English audience. And I think it's interesting that a decade later, when the Beatles burst on the scene, they were were a similar revelation. They created the same sort of feeling with the public, that there's me as a little kid on a screen. But but the Gibbs did go along to a cinema in Manchester. They were considering immigrating. I think Canada was on the list, and they went along as a family to see the Smiley film. And Morris later on confided in me that sitting in in their car, driving back to their little terrace house, they all said oh let's go to Australia so that's a lovely connection isn't it you know in in my life it
0: is incredible and those connections just keep on growing and growing before you joined the Bee Gees your group Steve and the Board and yeah they recorded a Barry Gibb track Little Miss Rhythm and Blues but actually that was a kind of a song swap wasn't it
1: it was well I previously met Morris although I'd heard of them in, in Brisbane, and when I finally took the plunge, so to speak, and left Brisbane, uh, it's a big deal leaving home. <laughs> I was at a venue in Sydney, and Morris came up to me, introduced himself, and uh, he had his sister Leslie with him, and I became very, very close friends with Morris. We just hit it off immediately and I went back to the family home and we sat up all night listening to records and commenting on records. I had that friendship with them right from the beginning. And then over the next sort of year and a half, when I had time to get away from my band, Steve and the Board, I used to do sessions for them. So that sort of connected us musically, built up a a musical rapport. Now with that particular song, the song was Little Miss Rhythm and Blues, Mm. I think they did, the um, Stephen the Board song, written by Carl Grossman, very uh, rhythm guitarist, very talented man who went on to write stuff for Status Quo, and uh, Ringo Starr did some of his songs, and um, we had this song, Lonely Winter, that Carl had written again and Morris recorded it. Now, I don't know whether it ended up on, on an actual recording, but it was a bit of a tit-for-tat sort of thing. All those bands in Sydney and Melbourne at the time, we were all struggling. We really were. We, we didn't get paid for half the gigs we did, and so there was camaraderie going on there. Coming into our lives. And when I finally decided to return to England to try and get my foot in the door in the film world, we had a a round table conference at their home, and the menu inevitably would have been about six cups of tea each and baked beans on toast. And it was decided there and then that because they were following me, in fact, to England, that if I hadn't had got anything going in the film world, that the offer would be for me to join the band, which I did within a day of them arriving somewhere in, in February of 67. So I became the fourth Fiji. <laughs>
0: The timing of of you both being in the same place at the same time, you knew each other, you'd played together. It was just so perfect.
1: It was. Now, also, there's a fact that I've realised that they were such gifted songwriters. You know, you can put them down to Gershwin and Lieber and Stoller. Oh, it just goes on and on. And, And Lennon and McCartney. But sometimes that's not quite enough. And in this instance, we uh, came across or he contacted us a manager called Robert Stigwood. Now, both the Gibbs and earlier on myself had bitter issues with Robert and that it, it all evolved around money. Right. Robert put money first. Simple as that. And uh, he took a bigger piece of the pie than he was entitled to. So I'll leave it at that. Mm. But we also came across two engineers in the, in, in, uh, at IBC. One of them was John Pantry. Oh. We reunited with a man that did a bit of production work in Sydney, and we caught up with him again uh, called Bill Shepherd. Now, Bill Shepherd, I think, is a very underrated figure in the BG history. He wrote some of the strings that he wrote for those songs. Like, for instance, the introduction to Massachusetts is absolutely haunting. And it was a great song, and we put down a really lovely, relaxed backtrack and stuff like that. But that was the the cherry on the top, was that intro. And Mm. it's when I heard that intro... Like we'd had two records, we'd had New York Mining Disaster and To Love Somebody. But I remember to this day, like songs bring it all back to you, don't they? Mm. I remember where where I was standing in the control room. And when I heard that intro, I thought, ah, this could be the record that breaks us. And it topped the charts in six countries around the world and sold 5 million copies. And that was that was the big key for us is Massachusetts.
3: Here I'm going back to Massachusetts. Something's telling me I must go home.
0: and the Bee Gees had a wonderful way of taking the influence of the Beatles but bringing your own sound to it. I it typified by on that Bee Gees' first album...
1: Yeah. I'd like to take credit that I suggested different time sequences, like bringing in 3 fours and 2-4 patterns. But it was very creative. But there's a track on there, that the most typical track on the album that you can hear that real Beatles influence. That's a track called In My Own Time. Yeah. Now, we got criticism from that. couple of DJs said, it's just like Tax Man. It doesn't matter now, but it is a bit the riff. And an interesting thing about that is that for those first couple of albums, Vince had the opportunity of actually playing solos and there's a lovely little solo that he he plays on that track, and indeed other tracks. Yes, but it was very Beatle-influenced. I remember listening to, was it Penny Lane? No, not, what was on the B-side, or the the other side of Penny Lane?
0: Strawberry Fields.
1: Right, Strawberry Fields. Now, Strawberry Fields, and it's the first time I heard a drummer do this, that he fills up like two bars leading with very isolated little things, right? Let me take you back. And then he does a little fill. The vocal takes over and then he plays a little bit more and then that finally leads in to the song. And I copied him, I must say, with something like, Cucumber Castle yeah in doing this had taken the same approach and it was really quite unique at that time so uh, the Beatles were a huge influence for us.
0: Songwriting as well. I've heard that you were you were actually there when for the writing of New York mining disaster.
1: Looking back now, I realize what a privileged position I was in. Not that I didn't contribute, but to witness the creation of a song from nothing. We were in this little demo studio, this is just before Vince joined, and there was some problem with the electricity and it, it failed several times. So on this occasion Barry had brought a torch or there was a torch there and we walked out of this little studio. The Gibbs always loved stairwells because of the the echo in the in the reverb that ran down the stairs. So we sat on this concrete step that went up and up and down around the the lift shaft and it started from nothing. And the conversation, as I recall from them, was, wouldn't it be awful to be stuck in the dark somewhere? And then someone, one of them, Morris didn't write lyrics. He just suggested chords and moved the track forward. And then it would have been either either Robin or Barry said, a minor could feel that sort of emotion. He's trapped there. He's He's never going, he won't know whether he's going to get out of this situation and connect with his loved ones. And out of that came New York mining disaster. And often, as time went on, we would arrive in the studio with no song. And I would have that opportunity of just sitting with them, suggesting, as I said earlier, different tempos. And I think the fact that. A lot of those tracks came from nothing, gave the tracks a real spontaneity because it's different than if you think weeks before, oh, we're going to record this song yeah. and you rehearse the shit out of it and then you go into the studio. It's not fresh like that. <laughs> that It's all coming together in a run of creativity. That's my theory anyway. And I think that there was so much sort of immediacy and freshness in a lot of those tracks that we put down.
3: In the
2: event
3: of something happening to me There is something I would like you all to see It's just a photograph of someone that I knew Have you seen my wife, Mr. Jones? Do you know what it's like on the outside? Don't go talking too loud, you'll cause a landslide, Mr. Jones. I keep straining my ears to hear a sound. Maybe someone is digging underground. Or have they given up and all gone home to bed? Thinking those who once existed must be dead. Have you seen my? Mr. Jones, in the event of something happening to me, there is something I would like you all to see, it's just a photograph of someone that I knew, have you seen my wife, Mr. Jones? Do you know what it's like on the outside? Don't go talking too loud, you'll cause a landslide
0: Mr. John You're vividly talking about your jazz background, how you're taking inspiration from Ringo and the Beatles, and even on the Bee Gees' first album, the complex arrangements and time signatures and... And just creativity. Uh, Look at um, Every Christian lion-hearted Man Will Show You and you've got the chanting at the start and then your drums come in.
1: A little hint of Ringo there, I reckon, again. (laughs) (laughs) But no, it's a great track. It's just so imaginative, isn't it? Yeah. It really is. There's some great things on that album. And then, of course, we moved on and our next uh, album was um, Horizontal. That was a lovely album as well. Some critics said it was a little bit bleak, but look, Massachusetts came out of that album and uh, I haven't heard it for many, many years, but um, we kept the quality going and that was a great album as well, I think, yeah.
0: World is from that
1: horizontal as well, isn't it? Oh, is it? Okay, yeah. They were so great, weren't they? The kids, goodness Hmm. me. I tell you a little funny story about World. Right, mm. and I played with this uh, a band I'm involved with. There were lots of clubs in in London at the time. There was like the Bag of Nails, the Revolution, the Marquee, the Cromwellian. But my favourite was uh, a club called the Speakeasy, and we used to frequent the Speakeasy when we we were in, in London. Which I reckon was only about twenty percent of our time, to tell you the truth. But anyway, I'm sitting there one night with a bunch of friends, and this uh, character who's he's <laughs> an old friend of the Beatles, and he was making his income by buying cars for all the stars mm. and selling their cars when the ashtrays filled up, sort of thing. And Terry came along. I'd met him once or twice. And he said, um, John is at our table and he would like to meet you. So I obviously I was delighted Mm. and I went over to the table. Now, John was a very cynical man and uh, very short in the way he spoke to you. And I talked to people who met him during that period of time and A lot of the time, he just put his hand over his shoulder to shake hands, wouldn't even look at them. Mm. But I'm proud to say that John actually stood up and faced me and uh, shook my hand, and we just had World released. I think it was about a week before, and it had already gotten in the top 20. And he said, uh, this new song of yours... What's it all about? It's just rubbish lyrically. The world being round and it raining every day. What's it about? And I said, John, I don't write the
2: songs.
1: (laughs) I just played the drums. And by the way, it's leapt in the charts and it looks like another big hit for us. And he said, well, I don't care about any of that. And this is word for word. He said, I think it's a load of bollocks. <laughs> right? So I, then I, I sort of left the table and went back, and I'm thinking, oh, well, at least I met Sean Lennon. So in the show, I introduce World. I relay that story, and I say to the audience, the next song is one of my favorites. And I've told them about John. And I said, the next song is called What a Load of Bollocks. <laughs> and And then I turn back to the audience and say something like, what on earth was I thinking? You know, the song is called World. And then I played the the song with the band. But that's a, a vivid memory of John. I never got to meet Paul, but Ringo was delightful to meet. I remember going out to his home there for an afternoon and walking around the garden. And I met George at Apple. You know, the funny thing, sometimes... I think to myself, did all this stuff really happen? Because it's just on such a scale. Then I I pinch myself and I think, yes, it did. How about that? How privileged are you to share all that excitement with all these talented people?
0: Moments. I mean, it's so many that you were packing in in that era. One of the follow-ups to World was words, and there's just some great footage of you and the group playing on the Ed Sullivan show. So that must have been one hell of a moment.
1: It was. uh, Before I left Australia, the family used to sit around and watch the Ed Sullivan show, and from memory, he introduced us individually, which was a lovely thing for for him to do obviously that was a big boost for us in america and because of the, obviously a very prestigious show
0: how did things develop i mean the, the albums just seemed to come so thick and fast um, soon after you, you're recording the, the album idea how many of the tracks were pre-done by the brothers and, and brought in fully formed and how many were actually they'd come into the studio and they didn't really have much.
1: That really was the case most of the time. Wow. And we would work the songs up, the five of us, as a team. And again, I think that that's why the songs sound so coordinated, that we never recorded separately. The only separate thing was the orchestra coming in after we we tidied up, we got all our overdubs done. Oh, my! God, we spent some time in the studio. I can't tell you. Sometimes we go in there for four hours. The gibs would come up with nothing, and we'd just pack it in and go home. And then we'd try again another day. And maybe the the um, creative juices were really running that night. We might get down three backtracks, but quite often we'd just go in there, fiddle around, and, and nothing had come. Yeah, look, it's great to be reliving this with a live live audience. I, prior to this band, Best of the Bee Gees, who are wonderful players, I must say, they've been doing it for 20 years. I hadn't stepped up on a stage for 40-odd years, hadn't played the drums for 40-odd years, apart from maybe on three occasions, sort of at a party or something. So I had to get over a lot of nerves to do this. I'd never spoken to an audience ever, really. So I I had to learn. I wrote out what I wanted to say and learned it. And I got a call from an actor friend of mine in Australia called Ron Kelly the night before the first gig. And he said, how are you feeling? Because he knew I'd be nervous. And I said, well, I've learned it off. I can do it. Right. Yeah. And he said, well, that's great, Colin, but if that audience feel that you're giving a speech, it'll be okay because it'll be interesting because you've got a history there. But if you can come across just like you're having a bit of a chat, then you've got them. And that's what I've been working on initially to just feel really comfortable and intimate with the audience. Look, everything's work. But now it's just coming so naturally to me, and I'm really enjoying the experience. And hopefully, well, it, it looks on the cards that the band will be coming to Europe at the late later, oh, brilliant. yeah, the latter part of next year. I'm so excited about about that because obviously, I'll, I'll do my trip down memory lane around London and see the different places I lived in. And, yeah,
0: yeah. You had such synergy in terms of the, the way that you played with the group, but a lot's talked about in terms of the uh, the connection between bass and drums. So,
1: Oh, goodness mate, they're the core. That's the core of it.
0: So how did you sort of lock in with Morris? I mean, it's like, I've got to get a message to you. The the way that you ebb and flow on that track is just a wonder.
1: Barry and Robin are absolute geniuses. I use the past tense with Robin, obviously. Hmm. But Morris was really the musician of the three of them. Barry could obviously play the guitar. Robin didn't play anything. But Morris, he played like he's so young. You've got to remember, I turned 21 in in March of that year when I joined the band. Now, the twins were like three or four years behind me. They were like 16, 17 at the most when we were launched. Morris was already playing bits of lead guitar, piano, bass, bit of organ. He was a real musician. And the interesting thing with Morris is that he was so open musically. His taste was very eclectic. I remember times with Morris, we'd sit down for a couple of hours on, in America or something and listen to bluegrass music. Or we'd listen to folk music or something. And uh, he was the link in that respect between Vince and myself to the brothers. And I think that, that Morris was the connection there between connecting the musical side of it or the playing side of it, like Barry would know the chords and stuff, but and making it a whole. And I can't say enough what a close friend I was with uh, Morris. He was great fun.
0: Seems to come across in terms of the range of styles that uh, you and the group had. I mean, by the time of Odessa and Vince had, had only featured on a little bit of this before he by, left. By
1: the time we recorded Odessa, the bulk of it was recorded in New York. And there was real friction there between Robin and Barry. Right. And Robert Stigwood summoned Robin back because he's up all night taking pills and whatever, and you'd have to drag him out of bed for a gig or interviews. We were just left there, the, the four of us, in New York. Now, Robin hated hated this album, uh, Music From Big Pink, okay? Now, Barry loved it, and I, I convinced Barry that we should just step out there a bit and just try a couple of country songs. The couple of tracks were Marley Pur Drive that was later covered by Feliciano and give your best to your friends. Now, of course, we just had to say when we did this stuff, we want a banjo player, we want a fiddle player, and we would be supplied with the the best in town, right? That's the position we were in. And the one thing I remember about this is that I'm newly wed, right? To Joanne. And I sent, she was working for Robert Steward. And I, I got a couple of rough mixes sent back to Joanne. And it happened that Eric Clapton was in the office and she grabbed Eric and played him these couple of tracks. And he was blown away. He said, oh, that's so brave of them to step out into that. Because I think, I think Eric had a bit of a love with country music as well. Although to tell you the truth, I don't think his style really sat when he played with country musicians, wonderful guitar player that he was anyway, but he loved these tracks and the disappointing thing for me, look, I don't have any regrets about any of this stuff, but the certain memories come up and Marley Purr Drive, Stigwood insisted that the orchestra was introduced on the second chorus. And when I heard it, I thought, for God's sake, Robert, it's a country song that we had great, great fun doing it. And I think that that reflects when you listen to Give Your Best to Your Friends. We we, we just had such fun doing it.
0: So Robin left?
1: Robin came back briefly and we did I think we did our second German come European tour after that as a five piece and then Vince decided to leave just before that and Robert said, That's all very well, I'll release you from world contracts and blah 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 but you have to guarantee that you do this last tour because it's all booked and whatever. So We did that last tour. I went on holidays in Australia and came back, and there's the four of us. It was still pretty amicable, not like the early days, but it was fine. And then Robin decided to leave, and this was brotherly conflict, uh, I think, above all else. You've got to remember that those three brothers had been getting up on a stage performing and I'm not just talking about sitting around the house doing stuff since Barry was 12 years old. Now we're talking 10 years on here and I think at that age it's very understandable that um, the individuals there, not so much Morris but Robin particularly because Barry was always promoted as the big star particularly with Stigwood and and it's understandable that Robin wanted to go out and prove that he could uh, be a star by himself. That left the three of us.
3: It's a square dance, Mr. Marshall. It's a square dance on the floor. It's a square dance, Mr. Perkins. It's a square dance, to be sure. To be sure. This is Riley, from I'm just a clown. I used to run around I used to have a million friends I used to start where everybody But I just give my best to my friends I've done my shows Everybody knows I nearly sold all my clothes One man can give Another has to lend So I just give my best to my friends Give your best to your friends I'm just a clown That used to run around I used to have a million friends I used to start Where everybody is. So oh, I just give my best Give your best to your
1: left the three of us and that lasted about six weeks and so it all ended things don't last forever for goodness sake i think i heard um, one of the stones interviewed richards i think and he said look when the stones kicked off if we had to stay together you know for a, a few weeks that would have been great you know and uh, the bgs and i uh, we're together for three three years, and it's because of that time together like that that we managed to put out so much product and there's so many songs that we did together that have lived on. So no regrets. <laughs>
2: I've
0: just um, been looking at some of the uh, the singles from that era, and don't forget to remember there was the picture sleeves on that have just got. Uh, yourself, Barry and Morris.
1: Yeah, that would have been right towards the end. The last song that I remember recording with them was a song called Tomorrow. To me, it didn't quite work, although I was happy with the drumming and that, but it was sort of those, one of those sort of bluesy, jazzy things. It really needed another real big departure to my ear. Some really lovely... Brass would have been nice there, but, oh, goodness me, that would have been too much of a departure for Robert Stigwood. No, they were great records, weren't they? They they really were wonderful memories for me.
0: Was it Robert Stigwood, he was how he was one of the prime factors for for your leaving?
1: Yes, he was, because I'd, I'd questioned where all the money was going. Now, in saying that, and I was talking earlier about significant people that come in to the picture... To make a thing work Robert was the best manager For us at the time Nothing ever went wrong On the road There was no hitches And there's no mobile phones Or any of that stuff going on Do you know what I mean Yeah. It just fell into place It was absolutely wonderful But Robert had a wonderful gift With well some people Would call it hype now But by gee you know You need a bit of hype at times now there was a time there after we first came back from new york and uh, vince and i were detained at the at heathrow because our visas had run out for some reason vince was waved on and someone said to him we'll be in touch or something like that but i was literally imprisoned in a hotel room overnight with an armed guard outside the door. Can you imagine this? And he sat on this chair. And when I wanted to leave the room to go down to, like, the dining room, I'd say to him, oh, you know, I'm Australian. How are you going? You know, like, nothing. He'd never said a word to me. And he'd follow me down to the dining room and take up the table next to me. And he wouldn't eat. He'd just sit there and watch me. And then when I got up, he would usher me back to the room. So, see, here's Robert, the genius of Robert. He created such a storm about this because we were bringing money back into England that he organized. It got a bit tacky at times, I must admit, but goodness me, it got us out of the music press and into the mainstream media because it was a political issue, in fact. So he had a procession down Whitehall, can you picture this, with hundreds of fans with an elephant in front, someone riding this elephant. He had fans chaining themselves to the railings of Buckingham Palace. He had fans landing in Harold Wilson, was the, the, the Prime Minister, in his garden out of London and trying to rush into the house. But there's a difference between being known in the music circle and being respected and having uh, hit records and whatever. But it was heaven sent in a way that this issue came up because Robert really did make the most of it. And the average family would pick up the paper in the morning. And you can imagine a couple of teenage sons or daughters or whatever, and they would have been on about the Bee Gees and whatever, suddenly the mum and dad are reading about this band. That was a bit of a turning point, I think, for us. In a way, he was our Epstein. Do you know what I mean? And I think, in a way, Bill Shepherd was our George Martin. It really does take a team. And uh, for that team to get together at a particular time when the artist is ready to pull it off. And it's an age old story. It was the same with me with Smiley, wonderful director, wonderful script, perfect weather, a lovely story. It just had all the elements. Most people that that have enjoyed big success in their lives if you dwell into, into it, there's a similar situation going, or a similar situation happened.
3: Mm, every day you make me cry, girl I cry too, too much Then today you said goodbye, girl It's just too, too much, much. Everyone's gonna drink You To be my wife, girl You were playing Now I ask you Where is my life, girl You were saying hey, I swallowed each and every laugh That you gave to me Well, I was the man I was And the picture that can never be Tomorrow Everyone's gonna know me bit And tomorrow yeah, Everyone's gonna drink my
0: You linked up with Jonathan Kelly then.
1: I did, yeah. Uh, Jonathan, very talented singer-songwriter. Yeah. And I was with Jonathan for five years. And so needless to say, we were very close for most of that time. I originally went into the studio and produced an album with him. Now, officially, it was my first production, although... The fact of the matter is the bgs produced themselves robert of course with his ego put himself as co-producer but he really wasn't he never went out on the floor with us and and tried to construct the track or anything like that he did attend mixes and make comments and when the bgs fell apart i thought right i'm gonna try my hand at being a producer and uh I did Jonathan's first album. There were strings on it. There were other instruments, whatever. But the core of it was a band called Ashton, Gardner and Dyke. Oh, wow. Now, they, a few years later, had a huge hit with Resurrection Shuffle. But what experienced and lovely players. And And a lot of Jonathan's stuff was really quite subtle and delicate. And they could adapt to that, you know. And that at least got him going. We didn't get get a hit out of it. Julia was a, a sweet song. Like he's a folk singer, and I introduced him, you know, to a band, an orchestra, and then we went on to Twice Around the Houses, which I didn't produce. That's okay. I kept managing Jonathan. He just wanted to try bring in another ear. There were a couple of tracks that came out of that, which I would love if you broadcast. Please. One is The Cursed Anastair. He had a gift of writing stories in his songs. I suppose you call them legends, you know, the sort of folk legends and a lovely sense of imagery. Stupid me. I never released it as a single, And I should have. The problem was that it it went for about four minutes, 30 or something and whatever. And I saw that as a hindrance or maybe the record company that was RCA said, oh, no, we're not going to take a chance on that. But when he worked live, people uh, would be calling out for this song. And he'd play a room, you know, sort of 500 people or whatever. And it was wonderful, they'd sing every word of this song. It was absolutely wonderful.
3: Far behind the prison where I'd spent the night, with no idea what I'd done or why they'd punished me, but feeling nonetheless relieved and grateful to be free. My path led to a woodland far behind a rusted gate. Knew it was a shortcut if I kept my walking straight But then like out of nowhere this old wizard man appeared Holding high his one hand while the other stroked his beard Beware the cursed Anna stare This warning did he bring That no one makes it through this war Coming out as they went in But a change is what I'm looking for I told the sad old man And bidding him a last farewell Into the wood I ran Soon I came to a river Where I stopped to bathe my feet And that was when I smelled her perfume Delicate and sweet Stood up and turned around and there in front of me Stood a beautiful woman who simply stared at me And then I knew it was all true what the old man had advised You must be Anna, I said as I looked into her eyes Beware the curse that stare. This warning did he bring no one makes it through this world Coming out as they went in When we came together in a passionate embrace I felt my body weaken and my heart begin to race And when at last the kissing stopped I saw to my alarm This woman now had changed into a young girl in my arms I heard her childish laughter, saw her vanish through the trees I turned back to the river, my reflection for to see And there inside the water I saw exactly as i feared To my horror I turned into an old man with a beard and I that i a This morning did he bring? But no one makes it through this wood. Coming out as they went in For seven long years I've waited by the skate Wishing I could die that can only happen if some other young man comes by First I know I must warn him to go some other way But hope that like most men of that age He won't believe what old men say To beware the curse and the there, This warning do I bring For no one makes it through this world Coming out as they went in
1: Another track I did with Jonathan is a song called Don't You Believe It, and it's a... Is that Clapton? It was. There you go with Aston Gardner and Dyke again. It's a sort of rock shuffle, I guess is the term. It's got great lyrics in it, very clever lyrics. It's about, don't you believe what you're told about told by the older generation, make your own way, sort of sentiment. And I put down the track... And strangely enough, because the cream were managed by Robert Stigwood, and by this time I was in litigation with Robert. So I'd only ever sort of said hello in the hallway to Eric. And Tony said, Oh, Eric had loved this, right? And I said, Well, give him a call, right? And so Eric turns up, and he turns up with this little vendor practice amp. I was expecting a couple of roadies coming in with a couple of Marshall stacks, But he got this sound out of this little, by overloading it, of course, and uh, this sound out of this little tiddly Fender amp. The lovely thing about it, for me, is that he started to play a few things and he let me guide him through it. He was all open to me saying, no, Eric, it's not what I'm looking for. I'm looking for something maybe a little bit simpler that you can repeat later on. Or It didn't take long, you know, 20 minutes conversation. And then he came up with this uh, slide guitar riff. The track, it was a good track. You, you'd listen to it and it had a great groove and that. But what Eric played just made it come alive. So that was a lovely moment with Eric. And uh, in a book that he wrote later on, he gave the track credit, which was lovely. But he said to me afterwards, see, we're in litigation. And he said, I don't give a a stuff about all that Stigwood business. He said, "Um, I love the track. And he said, if I can help in any way, I'll go on top of the pops. I'll do whatever you ask me to do with this track. I thought, what a wonderful gesture, because... Sigwood certainly wouldn't be pleased. Top of the pops was so important. I can't, I can't stress if you didn't get on top of the pops, it was an uphill struggle, unless you had a huge live audience. Maybe that would pull you through. Anyway, they gave me the show, and I said, "Oh, Eric's coming," and I phoned up Eric's house, and he's gone off to bloody America to do some shows and whatever. And I went back to them and I said, I'm sorry, Eric can't turned up. And they'd already, you know, committed. And uh, they said, sorry, mate, you don't have the show. So that's one of those little setbacks that you get.
3: She was young, they knew how to have the fun, but not today they got enough money to burn and plenty of sex and nothing to learn, something that they can get high on, there nothing they can get fire on, too much fornication, deprivation, intoxication. no gratitude, moral code or self-respect, don't you believe it, don't you believe it. Gotta know how to get yourself hands salute the flag, and break your jaws and marry a bag and go to war. Treat your girlfriend oh, trust your life, love them and leave them, and you'll be all right. And just to show that you're manly, don't mind if you give them a family. But when you go to marrying one, be certain that she's never been undone. To sin to marry a woman who's second hand. Don't you believe it? Don't you believe it, Papa? Make your own. Look get your haircut and don't you be late And dress right and talk square And drink up and move on And you're a regular misfit A drop out, and a pacifist An upstart, a black mark A reject, and a suspect, a traitor Troublemaker, maker, make drug taker it would be better to lock them all in jail Don't you believe it.
1: We had three albums, Jonathan and I together, and yet another producer came in for um, the third one, and there's a track there that I really love, and it's a story again, and it's called Godus, and it's about a minstrel going around and telling the tale. It's a lovely track. Jonathan did some wonderful things.
3: Seven horses gallop on a desert waste carry seven bandits making off in haste from the poor folks in the village left in fear and dread all the valuables gone and their men folk dead all at once they come upon a water hole and stop to rest the horses and divide the gold suddenly there's music coming across the dunes it's a man with a big smile and he's singing a tune my name is go and i play for free all i ask your friends is to believe in me much that is a mystery, come gather around me people now, gather around me people now. Us, could be the last thing you ever do. Well, hold on, Godus. What you gonna show us? Sickness and sadness gonna bury you. You don't scare me at all, says Godus with a grin. Now if you just follow me down to the water, we can all begin. You men don't look that uh, very smart to me, so I presume you've never ever seen a dancing tree. Now they're all gathered round the tree, down by the pool. Some of the bandits they call and go a fool, but he just takes out his silver flute and begins to play, and sure enough that tall tree starts to sway. best I could. The bandits, they come forward, they're looking for his blood. 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 But you can imagine their extreme surprise when Godus vanishes before their very eyes. If you're ever wandering out in the desert all alone, you come across seven figures made out of stone. I want you to listen very closely to the wind. Could be you hear our old friend Godus sing. My name is Godus and I play for free. All I ask your friends is to believe that is a mystery So why go cause another's misery Why can't you learn to live-
0: went deeper into the industry and and, and worked at CBS when you were still in London?
1: I did. I worked in A&R there. I was very, very picky because I think I realised how all the stars had to align for something to become really big. But I put my foot in the door once again, just a single, with uh, a really, really nice singer called... Frankie Stevens and and it was a Jackie DeShannon song I was always a huge fan of Jackie DeShannon and her songs like when you walk in the room what a Mm. what a classic pop song that is and no one's sang it like the original version that Jackie DeShannon did and so I picked up just listening through her stuff a song called Vanilla Olay, which I thought was quite hooky, and I did that with Frankie, and that, uh, it turned out quite well. He didn't have a manager, it, things weren't were happening there, And but anyway, I mixed an album called Badger
0: there. Ah, Jackie Lomax.
1: Jackie Lomax, yes. An American producer had come in <laughs> and produced the album, but he took the approach of, of just adding tracks and adding tracks and adding tracks. And in the end, when I was assigned the job to sort it out, there'd be like four lead guitar tracks I had to sort through and either construct a guitar track out of bits and pieces of these tracks or discard the others. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And uh, as far as working behind the board, I think it was at Ireland Studios. And I was really, really happy with that. And uh, Jackie Lomax was a, a real gentleman, by the way. He'd moved to America, I think. I had such fun. He wasn't there all the time, but he'd come in occasionally to check on the progress. And one of my favorite, di- funny that these things you remember, one, one of my, my favorite dishes was peking duck. And I remember twice. Jackie, let's have some Peking duck. So I'd get on the phone and we'd we'd stuff ourselves with his Peking duck. But he was really happy with the results. But the one thing I did pull off at my time at uh, CBS is that I brought in a band called Sailor. Uh Okay. Now, the rest of the company, I don't think we're all that keen. I think Dan Loggins, who was my boss, Loggins and the it's sort of like some of the songs, but I was sold on this because the concept was to have this image of of ports and sailors and wenches, and so it was theatre in a way. I just loved that band, and I'm pleased to say that uh, they were extremely popular in Europe, Germany particularly, uh, Scandinavia, and. One of the great songs there that the, they came up was Girls, Girls, Girls. So I think that that was,
2: <laughs> that was
1: the first big hit with them. And so after all this, in 74, I decided to uh, uh, come back home, uh, a, a move I, uh, I never regret. I mm. love being back in Australia. At the time, to fulfill your creative dreams, you had to go to England. So I don't think in a way I really appreciated what Australia had to offer. Although as a small child, how wonderful it was, you know, the beaches and all all that stuff. But um, now that I'm back home, I'm really happy here. And my now ex-wife, Joanne, who I'm really good friends with, over the period that I stepped away from the business, and became a house painter, mm. <laughs> which is something I took great pride in. I think all drummers are perfectionists, to tell you the truth. Mm. Joanne carried on the family tradition. She was uh, played a big role in the early days of In Excess yeah. and an even bigger role in the career of Keith Urban.
0: Brilliant. When you came back to Australia and you are involved in A&R and and production, you are still involved with some great tracks and hits like uh, Mark Holden, uh, Never Gonna Fall In Love Again. Well, I
1: did. It's funny, isn't it? It took all that time as a producer to finally pull off a couple of hits.
2: Hmm.
1: Uh, Yeah, uh, Mark Holden, he went on to uh, have a run of records after I left EMI. It's a lovely track. That's Never Gonna Fall In Love Again, that's an Eric Carmen song. And I covered a song called Storm In My Soul, which is a Gallagher and Lyle song with a, a girl singer from Brisbane. That's a nice little track too, and I'm quite proud of both those tracks. the playing drums again is is wonderful all i can say is that i'm thrilled to be part of this band uh, we had a, a quiet time there with the COVID, as indeed musicians all around the world did but um, things are really picking up now we've all already got like 20 gigs in next year and we've got 20 for the rest of rest of the year and it's giving me the opportunity to get around australia and see places that I'd, I'd never never been to before. There's a great family sort of feeling with the band. There's none of this sort of egos running wild, which usually you do when you're around 18 and you join a band. It's down to business, and everyone takes criticism from each other professionally. I'm so looking forward to coming to Europe, and I'm uh, enjoying the experience with the band.
0: From what I've seen, the top of the game, for you to to join them just yeah. gives it that extra special something.
1: To tell you the truth, and I hate to sound elitist about this, I've known the manager, Greg Shaw. He originally managed Keith Irvin, and a local museum put on a bit of a tribute to my life. Uh, with an exhibition. And I invited Greg up there to have a look at it. This is in Redcliffe where I'm currently living. And Greg phoned me a few weeks later and he said, you know something, you can really talk to an audience, that introduction you gave and blah, blah, blah. And I've been thinking about this and I had no idea, but he said, I'm managing amongst other things. And he said, I'm managing at BGG tribute band. Would you want to be part of it? And I said, oh, I, I really, he said you could play a few tracks. I said, look, first of all, Greg, when you've played in the real deal, you don't want to be involved in something that is second rate. It's as simple as that. Now, these guys aren't second rate, as I, I soon discovered when I went up to Northern Queensland to see them. And I immediately committed myself to be part of it. And then the idea of playing again came up and I said, look, guys, I haven't played for 40 years. So they sent me up a kit of drums and I was living on a property in Mullaney up on on the hinterland. And uh, I just put in like maybe half hour a day. I didn't play any BG stuff. I just played, I don't know, Rolling Stones and lots of bit of Beatles and, you know, later stuff, Eagles and, Doobie Brothers and, you know, all that stuff. It wasn't a matter of some some people said to me, oh, you know these songs backwards. You don't even need to practice. You just get up there and play them. It's not like that at all. When you've stepped away from it, you've got to go back to square one. And I started with just playing bass drum, hi-hat and snare. And I played just bass drum, hi-hat and snare for a couple of weeks just disciplining myself to that because that's the core of a drum kit and then slowly ventured out a bit so for the rest of my life I plan uh to uh to carry that on and uh just have have a play just to cds and stuff because I really do enjoy it although I must admit I was really quite imaginative with my playing but there were a lot of a lot of drummers at the time that were technically much more advanced than I was. But sometimes, you know, look, Chuck Berry only probably knew four chords. So sometimes when you're limited, you've got to be creative. I think you can overdo the technique. You get to a stage where you can't see the wood for the trees. But um, I've always been a, a song guy with drumming. Yeah, I'll ca- I'll carry it on, and uh, I'll, I'll hang with these guys. I tell you, because it's great fun, and we're getting great reaction.
0: Oh, that's that's so good to hear. And to close, perhaps it would be fitting to play a track that uh, we haven't discussed. To love
1: somebody. Y- yeah, to love somebody. It wasn't a huge hit for us, actually. I think it got sort of about twelve in America, or, but it barely made the top twenty in England. I think it was just a bit out of style for us, that it wasn't what the audience were expecting. Ah, oh, you know, singles, it's such touch and go. But the interesting thing about To Love Somebody, as far as the audience that I'm communicating with now, it's certainly one of their favourite songs. It's just lived on. And I think it's a, a song that... um stands different interpretations like so many singers could sing that song no it's it's, it's a wonderful song i'm more than happy to go out with that that's great
0: oh colin what can i say what a huge honor and privilege it is for you to share your memories about some of the greatest music ever made and as we've discussed it's just fabulous that you're able to to help bring that music to life and bring it into a live setting with the uh, the best of the Bee Gees. And uh, I really hope to see you over here in the UK when you, uh, you come to Europe uh, late next year.
1: I would love to catch up with you because I thoroughly enjoyed our chat.
0: That's amazing. Thank you so much, Colin.
1: You're welcome. Bye-bye.
3: So I'm a man. Can't you see what I am? I live and I breathe for you. But what good does, does it do if my am?